good. Even in nice, I suppose it's for you because uh, you are already having lunch. It's good morning for me because I haven't had lunch yet. So, welcome. Um, I'm uh, very glad, delighted to introduce uh, Francisco Gonzalez. Uh, 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 Political scientist born in Mexico, and but uh, who has uh, lived for many years abroad and studied in in England, Oxford, and has been uh, working and doing research in the states, uh, specifically at the John Hopkins University, uh, and, uh, the, the Graduate School of Pop, uh, John Hopkins University in the Washington D.C., where he is. Riordan Red, Associate Professor of Latin American Studies. Um, he uh, published uh, an important book on, the, on Chile and Mexico called Dual Transitions from Authoritarian Rule, Institutionalized Regimes in Chile and Mexico. And now he has just finished uh, the manuscript of another a piece of research devoted to the, um, the effects uh, of the, the, the 1929 depression on uh, Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay, right? Correct. So, uh, and I'm really uh, waiting to, to, to read that, particularly the section regarding Uruguay. Um, we've been, uh, today he's going to talk about the Mexican war on drugs or the war on drugs in Mexico, depending on how do you tackle that. And uh, well, um, please join me to welcome him. Thank you, Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks very much, Abril. I'd like to start by, by thanking Ohio State University for the invitation, uh, the Mersion Center, and all the people I've worked with uh, you know, to, to make it here, uh, Professor Trigo, uh, and Powers, Cheryl King, uh, all these people have, have helped me to, to be here today. Um, I'll talk about the war on drugs, and, and maybe the, the first question that might be asked is, well, it sounds like you've published things on dual transitions and the political effects of economic crises. So you know, why are you talking about the war on drugs? I'm Mexican. I've lived in the U.S. for, for five years. And inevitably, since uh, President Felipe Calderón came to power December the 1st, 2006, uh, with a declaration of a war on drugs, uh, this has created a, a huge whirlwind. And so inevitably, uh, those of us who are political scientists, moreover Mexicans, have been drawn to, uh, to it uh, one way or, or another. Um, I've only published two things on, on the one drugs, but I've, I've uh, uh, studied the problem uh, since uh, 06. Uh, I published a little article on current history, on, on uh, how the one drugs became brutal in Mexico, and then a, uh, a big foundation, Freedom House, I'm sure many of you know about Freedom House because they um, compile annual indicators 
for governance around the world. Uh, and I wrote a, a big piece for them on, on Mexico's democratic governance or lack thereof uh, with a big focus on, on the war on drugs. So here we go. I should start by saying that uh, the, the U.S.-Mexico relationship regarding the exchange of these commodities has been quite, uh, quite long-term. Um, most scholars, more, most commentators uh, point to two important institutional changes, uh, one in, in the early uh, 20th century, the other one a bit, a bit later on, still early 20th century, uh, the creation of first the International Opium Commission, uh, two conferences, which brought together more than 50 countries, uh, the end result of which was to suppress uh, uh, opiates and to uh, you know, create a black market for them. So, so, so this starts even before the First World War. Um, and this was then reinforced after uh, the U.S. Uh, um, passed prohibition, 1920 um, until 1933. These two legal changes, one international, multilateral, uh, the, uh, the other one uh, national, uh, it meant that uh, all this activity went underground and most of the, of, of the histories of the, uh, of the rise of criminal syndicates uh, in the U.S., in Mexico, show their appearance, their early development uh, in the 1920s uh, after uh, the institutional landscape changed uh, leading to the creation of this uh, uh, thriving black market. A couple of other sources uh, regarding the Mexico-U.S. Uh, narcotics relationship, if you want. First, uh, Mexican agricultural workers who since the 19th century have been coming particularly to Texas and California as agricultural workers introduced the practice of smoking cannabis uh, which then uh, spread uh, you know, to intellectual artistic circles. It didn't become a mass uh, consumed commodity until the 1960s um, but smoked in the U.S. at least since the 1920s. And another, another important point is uh, that some people sometimes miss. So that Mexico does not only export uh, marijuana, it also exports uh, opium, uh, poppy. Uh, this was brought to Mexico by Chinese migrants, Chinese migrants who'd come to the U.S. in the 18. 60s, 1870s, to help lay the, the rail tracks, to build infrastructure, bridges. If you remember 18, 1881, 82, Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, Chinese were not welcome anymore. Uh, many of them went to Mexico and they set up shop across the border and in some of the northern states, states like Chihuahua and Sinaloa, which became uh, uh, the main areas where Mexican poppy is produced. Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez, uh, since the turn of the century, since the early 1900s, were known uh, across the border as places where you could, you could go and, and, and look for opium dens. Uh, and and so, so this is a relationship that has been with us for more than a century. 
Moving a bit further on, uh, I'd like to highlight a couple of unintended consequences uh, of uh, U.S. needs during the war effort of the Second World War. The first one was the main sources to produce morphine, morphine for, to treat wounded soldiers, were blocked. Uh, main sources, Southeast Asia, uh, the Golden Triangle, you know, Burma, Thailand, Laos, and the Middle East, well, Afghanistan, they, they didn't start planting poppies last decade. They planted poppies for the last two and a half centuries. Um, when the Axis powers, um, Ger Germany blocked the Middle East route, Japan blocked the Southeast Asia route. When this happened, uh, Mexico became a, an alternative source. Uh, why, why did it become an alternative source? Well, as we said to start with, uh, Chinese migrant workers who'd moved to Mexico and had introduced the, the planting of uh, poppy seeds and who'd done business with Mexican farmers meant that there was already a, an indigenous industry there. What happened early 1940s was that officially, as a matter of policy, U.S. and Mexican government officials actually helped to organize populations in Chihuahua and Sinaloa, uh, our western highlands, our, our western Rockies, um, to ratchet up the production of uh, opium poppy, uh, which supplied the U.S. war efforts until uh, 1945. On the other hand, as well, big rise in demand for hemp, uh, for... Uh, for making ropes, also a, a direct result of the war effort uh, in the early 40s. Uh, unintended consequence, uh, massive production of uh, cannabis in Mexico. Um, so, so these two unintended consequences, I think, are, are important because both show that uh, during periods of crisis, cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico actually ended up ratcheting up, increasing the production of these commodities, which once the war came to an end, were banned again. Um, and what you had was you know, this uh, great capacity uh, both to produce and to distribute, which didn't simply uh, you know, become erased from the, from the surface of the earth. Uh, uh, what this gave way to was, again, a thriving underground economy. Let me now talk about how the Mexican government dealt with um, illegal narcotics between the 40s and the 80s. Uh, Mexico, for many of you who, who, who know about the country, for those fine, was ruled by, by the PRI uh, from 1929 to 2000. This was a, a party uh, whose main leaders were generals of the, of the Mexican Revolution, Mexican Revolution 1910 to 1920, uh, a devastating war which killed approximately a third of the country's population, which devastated its productive capacity. Uh, the surviving winning generals created this, uh, this party, as, uh, which, which early on was dominated by, by soldiers, later on from the 40s onwards, by civilians, and uh, whoever was in charge, the system in Mexico, uh, which remains the case, is one term, 
one presidential term equals six, uh, uh, six years, no re-election. Uh, so that's for the presidency. And for Congress, it's, it's similar to here. Uh, you've got similar but not the same because, for example, for our House, deputies, it's once every three years. And the Senate, it's once every four. So it had quite, a, quite an important uh, circulation of elites. Unlike many other countries in Latin America, which either ended up in the grip of, uh, you know, strong men, one-man dictatorships, Trujillo, Dominican Republic, the Somosas in Nicaragua, General Stresner in, in Paraguay, or alternatively um, ended up swinging like a pendulum between civilian and military government, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, Chile a bit a bit less, but one one uh, experience at least. Uruguay as well. Mexico was very stable between the, the 1930s and, uh, and and 2000. So political stability, relative social peace, and in particular between the 1940s and the late 1960s, a, uh, a substantial, a significant uh, growth uh, in a productive capacity accompanied by low inflation, growth of middle classes, urbanization. So the country became modern during these years. Um, but drug, and drug trafficking was part and parcel of Mexican life. It was not, you could not see it in, in, in each and every corner of, 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 the, of, the, of the streets. It was not something that you know your, your average citizen would m might even be aware of, but certainly for the leaders, for the president, for representatives, um, they all knew uh, the drug traffickers. Some people have gone so far as to say you know, they were partners. Um, I think that's that, that, that's a bit facile. Uh, certainly, many of them uh, turned a, a blind eye or uh, even went into business with the drug traffickers. But there was never uh, an explicit public policy directed toward, say, the cooptation of drug traffickers uh, in order not only to keep them under control, but also to share in the profits from the illegal drug trade, which is what some, some people say. Uh, it's probably best to characterize the relationship between the, the drug syndicates and the PRI uh, in this period as a live and let live affair. Um, some texts actually have uh, unearthed quite sophisticated markets which regulated this exchange. And so, uh, for example, big drug traffickers could choose the, the, some authorities in some states, Mexico, a federal state like the U.S., 32 states rather than 50. Um, in, in some of the states, they were practically offered menus. So if you wanted a, a, a prime transportation route that would take you directly to the border with the U.S., uh, a governor might, uh, they called it the uno, dos, tres, sistema uno, dos, tres, uh, one, two, three system. So prime uh, smuggling route, 
uh, you had to pay $3 million annually to the governor and his henchmen. Um, a secondary route, you know, maybe you to cross hills and maybe a bit more, uh, o o o you know, federal authorities' presence who were not in with them, you would have to pay two millions for that. And for the, for the really uh, uh, backward ones, those, those, those that uh, probably didn't even guarantee access to the U.S. border, actually just, you know, got to the next state and there you had to engage the authorities and, and, and do a, a deal again, you would pay one million dollars. So the, the point is, this is a very sophisticated system. Clear incentives were in place. And the drug traffickers would bid one against another uh, to try to get the one, two, or, or three. This is documented. This happened in Mexico, not in every single state, but certainly in the six states which border the United States of America, Baja California, Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas. All of those, uh, to some extent, had this one, two, three system. Um, some people, I mean, I, I, I think goes to show how bad things have, have got in Mexico today, since 2006, that people long for the return of this, of this system. Because um, uh, one of the main points there was do not disturb public order. So uh, implicitly, by going into business with the government, the drug traffickers were abdicating at least part of violent actions they could take. Uh, in exchange for doing business with us and for us turning a blind eye, you are not going to diversify into other lines of activity. You're not going to kidnap people. You're not going to uh, uh, commit extortion. You're not, you're not going to start charging a monthly fee to restaurants, theaters, etc., selling them protection. Uh, you're certainly not going to uh, intimidate people to try to get them off their land in order that you can you know, bring some of your allies to start planting uh, narcotics. Um, and, and you certainly are not going to engage in public violence, uh, you know, the main square, the church. And, and this was the Pacto de Caballeros, a gentleman's agreement, or a, 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 gentleman, a gentleman's agreement among non-gentlemen. Um, which worked. There were no decapitations in Mexico. There was none of the, of the gory, uh, uh, dreadfully horrendous, barbaric practices that Mexicans have come to expect in their newspapers, in the televisions, uh, since 2004, 2005. That did not exist. So it's quite effective, uh, this type of, of containment, first and foremost, because it was able to contain widespread uh, violence. More often than not, some of these government authorities would actually broker deals uh, between competing cartels uh, for drug smuggling routes, uh, etc. And this meant that the turf wars 
that became part and parcel of Mexican life since around 2000 were absent back then. And well, I think a point I, I, I've already made, it, it, many points of access to, to, to the drug cartels, like the US with a federal structure, you've got municipal governments, you've got state governments, the federal government itself. And so imagine just the, the thousands of points of entry whereby some of these uh, um, cartel leaders or their henchmen could actually uh, engage the authorities in order uh, that they ended up getting uh, <coughs> the facilitation of their, of their business trade. So important to underscore that this was never pursued explicitly as a, as a national government strategy. Uh, this was something that developed from the bottom up. And uh, I think there's still, I mean, the jury's still out there uh, regarding pinning down and presenting uncontroversial evidence, documents showing, for example, that any Mexican president was involved. That has not happened. What has happened is that uh, relatives, family members of presidents, uh, have been uh, uh, exposed as great beneficiaries of, of, of the drug cartels. No example... Uh, the, you know, president who for some time was highly respected in the U.S., Carlos Salinas, the guy who, behind uh, NAFTA, uh, a modernizer, someone you know, trained in, uh, in Harvard with a Ph.D. in uh, political economy, a bright mind. And his brother, the uncomfortable brother, Raul, um, who ended up serving uh, time in jail for, uh, for the murder of, of, of one of their ex-brother-in-law, a very Mexican story. Uh, Raul uh, was uncovered as, as being you know, very, very close with the then leader of the Gulf cartel, uh, Juan Garcia Abrego. Uh, a posteriori, it, it, it can, with the benefit of hindsight, now it can be seen why between 1988 and 94, the presidential period of Carlos Salinas, the Gulf Cartel was not uh, hit uh, um, while the Sinaloa Cartel, the Tijuana Cartel, the Tijuana Cartel in particular, was hammered during, during, during that period. And so th the conclusion there is that even if the presidents and, and, and his, her main collaborators, advisors, secretaries are not in it, people very close to them are. And that continues to be the case today, today. Just a map to show that up until the 1980s, uh, the big problem for the U.S. was Colombia. And most of the resources devoted to uh, the war on drugs in the U.S. was devoted to try to bust the Colombian cartels, to try to bust the most important distribution route, which was the Caribbean the Caribbean route. Uh, if you can see, uh, and, and all this comes from the DEA. I, I urge those of you interested in the topic to look at DEA web pages. They are, they are, uh, they've got an enormous amount of, of information, uh, quite up to date. Some of it you come across it and you think, should this be classified? It's very, very well, well set out. Um, 
So it's, it's a very good resource for those of you interested in it. You can see the main point is um, two main uh, routes for entry, New York City with Colombian, um, also Dominican uh, uh, DTOs, drug trade organizations, uh, controlling uh, the entrance of cocaine. Uh, but the bulk of it came through uh, the Florida Strait. And the distribution within the United States was actually carried out by American gangs. You've all heard about the Hell Angels and the Pagans, and, you know, these motorcycle chaps who, you know, since the 60s, riding around, and, you know, just whatever, doing whatever. <laughs> uh, well, they were, we know we, we, they were making good money uh, because they were, they were in charge of the distribution um, uh, methamphetamine uh, and certainly uh, cocaine. So this is the, the, the 1980s. And what was happening in Mexico? Well, as, as I mentioned beforehand, Mexico is both a producer of heroin and of uh, marijuana, particularly northwestern uh, Mexico. And um, up until the 80s, as I will show, uh, the, the, the transit uh, of, uh, of the drug it's not that it was impeded, but the, the main issue, early 80s, mid 80s, was the Caribbean route. It was cocaine rather than uh, heroin and uh, uh, marijuana. The, the Mexican government uh, of the 1980s actually uh, had to engage in a, in a ferocious clampdown uh, to try to reduce even further this arrow, to really thin out that arrow. And the reason for that was this event, uh, what many people call a game changer. Uh, DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena, Mexican-American, was brutally murdered in Mexico uh, in 1985. He discovered a huge ranch in the state of Chihuahua, the state of Chihuahua, border with Texas, the largest state, just uh, in, in terms of geographical surface in, in Mexico, and discovered a huge cannabis plantation, which was actually looked after by military and state police forces. They were watering you know, the plants and oh, growing very nicely, and, and the guy just couldn't, couldn't believe it. Um, he knew who the owner of the ranch was, Rafael Caro Quintero, a man from Sinaloa, with whom he'd had several interviews. Um, and the Sinaloans, uh, you know, tried to use both carrots and sticks with, with Kiki. Uh, you know, just how much do you want? And, and, and where do you want the money? We'll put whatever you want. And no, no. Um, and they disappeared him when, when, when apparently he, he just wouldn't budge. Um, his tortured remains and those of the pilot that had been doing surveillance with him were uh, discovered. And this, this created a, a big public frenzy here in the, in the U.S. No? A, a U.S. federal government agent brutally tortured and murdered in Mexico. Moreover, as soon as uh, the, the then Reagan government put diplomatic pressure on Mexico, solve the case, give us the evidence, what's going on? And the Mexican government just dragged its, its feet. That really convinced both 
the American government and the American public that many uh, among the, the political class in Mexico, many highly placed individuals, were completely involved in this. Among them, the head of the Dirección Federal de Seguridad, the Federal Security Bureau, which overlooked uh, issues regarding the, the, the fight against narcotics, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, imagine uh, Donald Rumsfeld or, uh, or, or, or Bob Gates uh, being in cahoots with Caro Quintero and, and, and company. Uh, this man, the Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, Brigadier General, ended up having to serve a couple of years in house arrest given how, given, given the magnitude of the embarrassment he'd caused the Mexican government. But that was the only reason this happened. Otherwise, had this not been, you know, making splashes all over the place, uh, maybe uh, General uh, Arevalo Gardoki might have just continued, you know, having a good time, having a laugh, and just making more money. Given the great pressure uh, uh, exercised by the U.S. government uh, at a point in time, 85, when Mexico was on its knees, economically speaking, 1982, massive bust. We defaulted on our, on our external debt, uh, and that gave way to what later came to be known, sadly known as the lost decade, lost decade in terms of social and economic development. At that point in time, the United States had quite a lot of leverage through the IMF, through the bank, uh, and Mexico was just, the Mexican government was more more than willing to acquiesce and to try to do as much as possible to try to put this behind them. That's the reason why the heads of you know, top law enforcement uh, and military uh, institutions who before that had been untouchable, even if many Mexicans knew that they were involved, it was the death of, of, uh, of Kiki Camarena, which uh, became a, a game changer. What, this, what did this game change mean? What, what, what did it create? So we, Mexicans raised anti, anti-narcotics operations. They they, they they very obsequious about trying to show the U.S. that, that they're cooperating that they purged the ranks and, and that the rotten apples have, have, uh, have been, you know, got rid of. Um, and, and so there was a substantial effort to try to, if not eradicate the, the, anti-narc- the, the, the narcotics trade, at least to every so often have something to show for and, and to have have something to show for, first and foremost, not to the Mexican public, to the U.S. federal government. What were the the, the main effects of this? Well, higher police and military involvement, higher likelihood likelihood that many of these ended up being corrupted to uh, to aid or actually work for the drug cartels. As as more officers were put on on the ground, um, they became... uh, systematically and thoroughly penetrated by the drug trafficking organizations. Number two, as actually the likelihood of of, of disruption of supply increased, 
This drove profit margins higher, which gave the cartels more dollars to buy both weapons and henchmen. And uh, number three, whenever a big or a medium-sized cartel was busted and, 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 and was decapitated and you know, the, the, the biggest fish was, was captured, this gave way to uh, intra- and inter-cartel turf wars, which became increasingly bloody uh, in uh, the 1990s. So this is an interesting paradox. The Mexican government is forced to get its act together uh, and, and to every, uh, almost on a quarterly basis, I suppose, show you know, the amounts of weapons that have been confiscated, the amounts of narcotics that have been confiscated, um, the, the number and rank of drug criminals that have been arrested. Um, and some of the side effects of, 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 of these uh, uh, measures were higher prices for the product, so higher profit margin to be able to continue corrupting authorities, to be able to continue recruiting uh, youngsters. By 2000, the, the, the landscape has changed quite dramatically. If you remember, 1980s, we just saw a, a Colombian flag here and the Colombian flag there. Uh, by the 2000s, the Mexican organizations had taken over most of the distribution of coke, heroin, marijuana, methamphetamine, and ecstasy. Um, and reasons for this, several reasons, but the most important were the, uh, the collapse of both the Medellin and the Cali cartels in Colombia, um, and the very robust approach that the U.S. took in conjunction with the U.K. in the Caribbean. Uh, the British were operating through West, West Indies, the Americans through Florida, and during the presidency of uh, uh, George Bush Sr., Bush 41, uh, and uh, must have been the, you know, the, the latter part of the Thatcher years or, or the early John Major years in, in the U.K., um, a big effort was made to, to bust uh, operations transiting through uh, the Caribbean. This was highly successful and forced a, a change in the basic distribu network distributions, uh, which started coming through Central America and Mexico, but the, the bulk of cocaine targeted Mexico's western coast. Okay? Um, and so you know, no more hell angels or, or, or native gangs. It's, it's, it's Mexicans. What the Colombians did uh, once the Caribbean avenue was shut down was uh, to uh, allow the Mexicans to distribute the product. So what the Mexicans would do was, you know, cash for product. We give you the cash uh, and we move the product and, and that's that. Once the Mexicans had the product, they, they got the power to, to define how, where, when to, uh, uh, to engage and they came to dominate uh, uh, the domestic market, the, the domestic American market. 
Okay, so that's kind of like first part of, of, of what I have to say. And here I want to now introduce a political element that will try to bring us up to date on, okay, so this has been happening for a long time. And the Chinese introduced uh, cultivation of, of, of poppy in 1895, 1900. Why have things got so, so bad since 2000? Enter politics and elections and democracy and, and all these things. Mexico had a very controversial presidential election in 2006. This is the electoral map, Mexico with the 32 states. Uh, and if you see, the country is split into two. Uh, this, uh, these are the results for presidential elections, just for, for presidency, not for Congress, in each of the 32 states. The, the, the great absence, very surprising absence, is the PRI, for the first time in its history, did not take a single state. And in Congress was actually relegated to third place. This had never happened uh, uh, to, uh, to this hegemonic party. This party, at the end of the day, represented center-left, center, catch-all, and that just gave in. And what you ended up with was a strong, resurgent, conservative party, the PAN, and a strong, vociferous left, the PRD. And so what you have is a country that becomes dramatically split politically between a, a, a center, center north, which, uh, which votes for the PAN, and the PAN, you know, you could say, has parallels with the Republican Party here, uh, a general belief in um, individual freedom, uh, market freedom to realize individual choices. Um, it's socially conservative. Most of, of, of its people are, are, are Catholic uh, uh, individuals. The PRD is, 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 is a bit of a, uh, a strange animal because it was only born in 1988, 89, um, and it was born from a PRI split. In 1988, the PRI faced a, a critical juncture the country was in this dramatic crisis I told you about eight, since 82, a dreadful economic crisis. By 88, the people at the PRI were saying, well, do we stick to what we know, which is relatively closed economy, state-led development? But if so, you know, there's no money at the moment to uh, stimulate the economy. If we, if we try to pump up the economy, all we're going to end up with is inflation, like the Peruvians, like the Bolivians, like the Brazilians back then. What's the alternative? Well, maybe we open up and we embrace markets and we embrace the U.S. And this was a debate that just split the PRI in 1988. And those uh, you know, nationalist, populists left and formed the PRD, whereas many others, even the modernizing technocratic stayed in, the, in the, stayed in the PRI and then went on to rule Mexico through President Salinas, 88, 
94, and lastly, President Sevillo, once NAFTA had been signed already, you know, 94 to 2000. So the, this, this party is not as cohesive as the PAN because it has you know, some of its, they, they call it a, a, a big confederation of tribes on the left with ex-PRI, nationalist populists, communists, socialists who decided to you know, join the left and say, hey, we need a broad block. If you're going to beat these technocrats, we, we've got to be together. Anarchists, syndicalists in, in public universities. So what you have is, is a complex organization, a mass organization with substantial political support, but with permanent dissent, permanent infighting vis-a-vis uh, -vis the PAN and the PRI. The key point to make here is this had never happened before in Mexico. Between 1929 and, uh, and 2000, this had been... Uh, green, white, and red, which is the color of the PRI, the color of our flag. Come 06, the country is deeply divided politically uh, between two irreconcilable sides. And, and this is why, I mean, it's not, it, it was not just uh, you know, trying to create a storm in a glass of water. The difference between the, difference between the winner uh, and the runner-up was half a percentage point, less than a quarter of a million votes out of more than 41 million votes cast. The leader of the left, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who'd been mayor of Mexico City, Mexico City, the most important, the neuralgic center of the country, you know, much more, say, than Washington, D.C. Uh, Mexico would combine the, the economic clout of, of New York uh, and, and, you know, in the historical reminiscence of, of Philadelphia, everything would be Mexico City. Very important. This guy takes over the Zócalo, the main, the main uh, square, takes over downtown Mexico, shuts down main avenues, and camps with, with, with his followers for a couple of months to put pressure uh, in order that a hand-by-hand -hand recount is carried out. The Federal Electoral Tribunal... In, which is independent, which has justices who first and foremost cannot be members of a political party, um, but who, like all human beings, have their own political preferences, is well uh, represented. It's got three people who are priistas, three people who are panistas, three people who are perredistas, so, you know, so some parity among these uh, nine, nine people. Credibility. And so they allowed a partial recount. Uh, the partial recount was you know, one in every ten of the votes uh, selected uh, randomly, uh, you know, with, with, uh, uh, with statisticians uh, uh, supervising the exercise. And the outcome remained the same. Uh, sure, votes changed one way or another, but, but it went in both directions. Lopez Obrador lost some and then won some over, and, and the same thing happened to uh, Calderón. Calderón was uh, 
proclaimed president-elect on September the 3rd. Uh, important here to, to, to say that given the hard evidence that the magistrates reviewed, all the decisions regarding this, this thorny issue were unanimous. And so even the three center-left periodista justices ruled with the majority, even though some were personal friends of Andres Manuel. This gave the final outcome at least some semblance of legitimacy. The supporters of this project are you know, hereby saying that given what they were pre presented with, this is what stands. Lopez Obrador was obviously furious. Uh, many of his followers were furious. The people in the pan started, uh, you know, modeling uh, crisis scenarios. What do we do on December the 1st when Calderon has to assume office? Will they allow him to go in uh, or not? Uh, and something very peculiar happened. Uh, for the first time since at least the 1920s, the president received uh, the national sash with, with the colors of, of our country and the eagle and the serpent in uh, the presidential palace, Los Pinos, rather than in the National Congress, where it usually takes place. This happened at... 12.01 of December the 1st, 2006, they went to the bunker, they transmitted it on, on national television in order that everyone could see that power was being transferred legitimately. Uh, the president was surrounded by military cadets, by cadets of the, uh, of the Heroico Colegio Militar. And the day after, when he at least had to, by law, the Constitution mandates that this person, the uh, chief executive, go to Congress and, you know, a bit like here, say, I pledge to fulfill my duties in front of the new representation. Uh, and that really, be before his arrival, PAN and PRD had been basically carrying out a, a rugby match trying to, you know, get the podium and, and, and just get around the podium so that he could not come, uh, blocking uh, doors so that he couldn't even have access to the place, and then a countercharge by the ban, and they would take the podium. This went on for several hours. Um, and finally, uh, the president was able to come through the back door, very symbolic, had to come through the back door um, uh, through a... You know, little, you know, very slim passage that pan religionaries and some PRI just created for him in order that he could make it to the podium, do his oath, and leave. After he left, the first thing he did was go to the Campo Militar Número Uno, the military uh, camp. Again, something that Mexican presidents had not done since the 1920s. After that, usually, the president would go to the Zócalo, the main plaza with the great 16th century cathedral and the 16th century buildings. Um, and there would be a desfile, a parade. The president would be uh, in the balcony of Palacio Nacional, uh, where, 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 where he works. 
you know, saying hello to, to people and people wishing him well. So it was connecting with the civilians. Not this time. This time he went straight uh, to the main military uh, barracks close to the presidential uh, residence, Campo Militar Número Uno, um, and did what no other president had done since the 1920s when presidents actually were generals by trade and had fought in the revolution. He, uh, uh, he wore his fatigues um, and whereas Lopez Obrador, since the, all the pressure for the recount and the takeover of Mexico, the downtown Mexico City, had been deriding Calderon and calling him time and time again the spurious president. I am the legitimate president. I am the, 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 the man the people chose. This is a spurious guy. What Calderon did to test who was spurious and who was legitimate was wear the fatigues uh, to see who the commander-in-chief was and to see who the troops obeyed. And the troops obeyed President Calderon. So there was a, this big political component behind coming to power of the president. He, he was not only going to do this for show, not only going to know, go and salute the military at the Campo Militar, just, hey, I, I just thought I would drop in and, and, and say hi. Given how polarized the political situation was in the country, President Calderon and his advisors decided to use the armed forces uh, as the linchpin of the presidency. And that's when the president declares a war on drugs. His signature policy, something which came as a surprise, these people, Lopez Obrador, Calderon, and, and the PRI guy, Madrazo, they've been campaigning since no, November, December 05, election July 06, and you know, throughout those seven, eight months of campaigns, uh, public survey after public survey had shown that Mexicans' top concerns were crime and insecurity, not drug trafficking, crime and insecurity, and jobs, an economy which has underperformed for the last 25 years, an economy which today requires simply to absorb all those youngsters coming into the labor market year in, year out, to create around 800,000 jobs. And to put it into perspective, during President Fox's administration, the guy who followed after the PRI, so the PAN comes to power in 2000, Fox 2000 to 2006, and now we've got Calderon, 06 to 2012. And in these six years, of rule by President Fox, a net 300,000 jobs were created in the formal sector, an economy that needs to create 800,000 just to absorb its incoming workers. So the issue of crime and violence was there, and, and all the parties had received that message, and the economy was, was the other red light. 
neither the PRI nor the PRD nor the PAN ever throughout the campaign talked about a war on drugs at all. They talked about zero tolerance. The mayor of Mexico City hired Rudy Giuliani to teach us how to bust criminals. So, so, so the demand was there, and governments left, center, and right tried to respond to this demand. But, it, but, but no, it, it, many people, without exaggerating, said this came out of the blue, a declaration, a national declaration of a war against drugs. This he does uh, early December of, of 06. And some of the characteristics of what's, what's been happening, uh, one of the key problems is that this is a conflict fought by professionals. It's soldiers against soldiers and policemen against policemen. It's not just you know, aficionados. These are professionals. A majority of the hitmen and henchmen who work for the cartels started as military officers, as federal or state police agents. And what ends up happening is that this escalates not only in terms of tone and now we've got a war on drugs, so be careful. It's, it's actually the participants in this conflict which uh, uh, can easily transform this, I wouldn't say into a civil war. A civil war requires one side to have a political project and to at some point want to, uh, uh, to fly its flag. And, and the flag stands for a series of values. And, uh, this is not that type of conflict. This is a conflict... Uh, over profit. It, 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 this is business and the government is hitting these businessmen and they are fighting back. They're not trying to create their own political party as Colombia. Colombia, that's why it's not, not such a good analogy. The FARC has a revolutionary program and its ideological proposals and has its cells organized and they have plans about how they would go about uh, changing the country once they were in power. There's nothing of that here. So uh, regarding the intensity and the body count, some people are saying, hey, this is a civil war in Mexico. Um, regarding the, if you want, uh, tactics. But regarding the, the ultimate aim, this is first and foremost uh, a, a battle over this these inordinate profits which accrue to those who produce, distribute, and sell uh, what they are illegal narcotics. Recently, a leaked Mexico federal, recently, I mean two or three weeks ago, uh, a leaked document from the, from the Mexican government suggested that around 23,000 individuals have died in drug-related violence since President Calderón took over. Um, this was quite surprising even to those you know, left-wing uh, opposition people who been, uh, who thought they were being uh, quite critical and tough by saying that you know, it was not 15, but maybe around 18,000 who were dead. Well, the government's estimates are, are, are already uh, higher than that. 
and there's, there's an issue also of credibility. Because at, at one point, early on, many Mexicans said, okay, um, th th this is a bit of a surprise. No one in their political, during the political campaign said they were going to declare a war on drugs and they were going to bring out 50,000 uh, military personnel to pursue this, to put it into, in, in, into perspective. President Fox, towards the end of his, of his years, in 0506, when violence got out of hand uh, in Tijuana and in Matamoros, sent around 10,000 troops, and he received an enormous amount of flak, left, center, and right, because this had not been seen in Mexico before, because the military, which remains an institution with relatively high levels of trust among, among Mexicans, would be exposed and potentially compromised, which they have. And his successor says, hey, that was nothing. We've, this, has to, you know, this has to be ratcheted up four or five times in order that we can get results. And so the problem of credibility is that whereas early on this was sold as you know, shock and awe, a year or two, and we're going to get the main bad guys and then hopefully we will be able to, to go back at least to the kind of you know, 1990s where when here and there we would capture a big capo, but no major disruption to everyday life. No human heads in plazas. No human heads being thrown into kindergartens. That's been happening in Mexico. Um, and so the problem with credibility is that even in the cases where, as in Ciudad Juarez, they've been occupied by the military. They've been under state, uh, under a curfew. The violence has, has not stopped. The violence has continued unabated. So, so that is a big problem regarding the, if you want, the expectations that Mexicans had regarding the, 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 the war on drugs. And whereas early on, Close to 70% of Mexicans, when asked, supported President Calderón. Yes, I support that this guy gets tough with these bastards. I mean, these people are bad. Get them. There was support for that early on. Three and a half years later, the, the public surveys, the main public surveys, Reforma, Milenio, uh, BIMSA, three or four reputable surveys show around two-thirds, 60, 63% of Mexicans saying the war on drugs is, is being lost, and President Calderón, in fact, has, there's little that he can do, because in any case, there's no re-election, this guy is already a lame duck. 19, under 20% of people saying, there is some progress, I continue to support uh, the president. Very, very quickly, uh, given the 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 strong political component to, to this crisis. A couple of, of other things were done to, uh, in order that we don't have a, a repetition of 2006 where you end up with very, very close uh, electoral results that end up in, in, in a fallout that leads to you know, hasty decisions with some intended consequences we are now living through. So there was, there was an important electoral reform in Mexico and an important uh, uh, strategy of reforming the justice system. Uh, the most important 
point regarding this is the creation of, of six new uh, federal tribunals whose role is to control, uh, whose role is to expedite search warrants, house arrests, and wiretaps, things which, uh, through the Merida Initiative, and, and we'll talk about that shortly, I'm, I'm about to finish, uh, the U.S., U.S. personnel have helped the Mexican government to build capacity on, on this side, and I'm, I'm happy to talk a bit more about that if you want. Uh, enter the U.S. So whereas up until 2006 and before, the U.S. used to, to have a you know, unilateral position on you are cooperating, you're not cooperating. Remember that contentious system of certification or decertification that the Congress passed annually on the main uh, producing and distributing uh, narcotics countries, uh, the Bolivias, the Perus, the Colombias, the Mexicos, which was then shelved. Um, still, you know, during the, the Fox administration uh, and, and, the, and the first presidency of uh, Bush 43, uh, there was no pledge whatsoever, you know, for robust engagement or targeting aid for Mexico, you know, that they can fight the cartels. This is something that happened uh, once President Calderón had declared the war on drugs, December uh, 06. In 07, during uh, a meeting of the North American leaders, uh, Canada, Mexico, the U.S., within the framework of NAFTA, President Calderón explicitly asked, requested help from President Bush, who in turn, you know, pledged to work in, in, in his favor, to lobby members of Congress, to put together a, uh, an aid program. This aid program is now being dispersed, 1.4, started in 08. So end of next year, something has to happen. Is it renewed? Will it be uh, annually uh, evaluated? Um, should we move in the direction of a really robust bilateral cooperation like Plan Colombia, whereby between 2000 and now, more than $7 billion have been dispersed. Moreover, with around 700, 800 uh, U.S. personnel, military as well as uh, uh, law, from other law enforcement agencies working in Colombia. Is that the way to go? We don't know. But one thing the Americans were clear about was don't give them any money. <laughs> don't give them any money. Uh, and they were right. And they were right because that money was just going to end up in the hands of the cartels. Yesterday we were, during our, our, our dinner, uh, Professor Trigo very kindly invited me. He was saying, well, okay, so no money. Might the hot helicopters not end up in the hands of the cartels? Oh, good point. I don't know if a, if a superhawk helicopter might. I'm sure that other hardware, assault rifles, ammunition, will certainly end up passing hands. So, so we've got to be very careful because here, USA, given that the Mexican government cannot guarantee that it will stay in responsible uh, uh, hands, uh, it is highly likely that a proportion of that aid in hardware will end up arming uh, the, the cartels. The Obama administration uh, went even further. Mexicans were very um, 
supportive of and admiring of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton when she uh, made her first visit to Mexico, um, given the, the kind of mea culpa that she, uh, that she made in public, uh, and, and, and these are her words now saying, we uh, agree that it's the unsatiable appetite for illegal drugs that fuels this, uh, this problem. Uh, and so, in theory, once, once uh, President Obama and President Calderon started working together, the new buzzword for this new type of, of engagement is, 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 is known as co-responsibility. Just to give you a flavor of, of the main protagonists, and, and then I'll show you just some of the flows, and, and then I'm open for, for questions. Um, again, important differences vis-a-vis -vis Colombia. Colombia was dominated by two powerful cartels uh, who held sway and authority in drug-producing areas of Colombia. Here you've got cartels throughout the country, first and foremost because Mexico is a distribution hub. Uh, unsurprisingly, like their Colombian counterparts, some of the stronger cartels, the Sinaloa cartel, for example, is also, uh, uh, and things like the so-called Familia Michoacana and the Beltran Labor Organization, all these are in drug-producing territory. All this is cannabis, and from Jalisco further north, all the way to Chihuahua, Durango, Sinaloa, that is the opium-producing uh, region in Mexico. Um, very difficult taxes. Mexico is, uh, is cut by three big mountain ranges. The first one here in Chihuahua going all the way down. The Sierra Madre Occidental, or, or Western Range. Difficult taxes. Perfect area to, to grow cannabis and poppy. Then on this side, we've got the Sierra Madre, or, or Sierra Madre Oriental, the Eastern Range also with important drug activity in the states of Veracruz and Oaxaca. And here we've got the Sierra Madre del Sur, the southern range, also difficult access, plenty of room to, to operate. So we've got not only two, we've got several more uh, cartels. Um, some of them made their name simply by controlling the main gate into the United States, El Cartel de, de Juarez y el cartel de Tijuana, whereas these were in charge first of receiving the cocaine coming through the Pacific Ocean and uh, being disembarked in the coasts of Oaxaca, Guerrero, Michoacán, Colima, Jalisco, Nayarit, and Sinaloa. And here you've got uh, uh, an interesting and disturbing phenomenon the Gulf Cartel, the, the cartel that I was telling you, um, uh, President Salinas' brother was, a good ma was good mates with the leader of that cartel back in the 1990s. This cartel started hiring mercenaries, U.S.-trained Mexican soldiers, special forces officers, who in Mexico are a handful, the Gulf Cartel recruited many of these people. 
uh, they have become probably the most vicious of the bands. Now they've broken off with their uh, ex-employers, and now Los Zetas, which is this uh, infamous paramilitary group, is uh, operating in the eastern part of Mexico and in the central part of Mexico. Here I show you some of the flows, which I think this, this looks better, because first it shows where the, the drug is coming from, so you know, unsurprisingly, uh, cocaine from Colombia. A, a lot of the, of the precursors to, uh, uh, to create methamphetamine, like ephedrine, come, come from China, and everything uh, uh, is, is dumped in the main Mexican ports in the Pacific. And what you have now is a quite a fractured geography of these cartels with the Gulf cartel and the Zetas fighting over the Gulf Coast and fighting over all this stretch of Mexico-Texas border, important cities like Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, Matamoros. A big, big fight over the heart of the country. Uh, there is presence of all the cartels in Mexico City. There's not a single cartel who could be in charge of, of the city, and so they, they uh, have uh, you know, basically divided the city into zones of influence uh, in order that they can minimize friction and just carry out business. Um, and the, the, other, the other big point is Cartel de Juarez, which back in the 1990s was one of the strongest cartels has been decimated uh, was hit hard during the Fox administration uh, a lot of the great and hideous violence that we've seen here in, in the US in Juarez and Juarez is now being called uh, the capital murder of the world uh, all this started two and a half years ago when the Juarez cartel which was already debilitated uh, started fighting with the Sinaloa cartel. The Sinaloa cartel tried to wipe them out just to be able to uh, uh, be in control of Juarez. And what's been happening is a turf war between Sinaloa and Juarez. Juarez has been defeated. And so now the remnants of the, of the, of the Juarez cartel are fighting on the side of the Zetas while the cartel of Sinaloa uh, has joined forces uh, with the so-called Familia Michoacana and with the Gulf Cartel uh, to keep fighting. I think I'll, I'll leave it there, and I'm, and I'm open to, to questions. Big business, yes. That's a very good, yeah, that's. Yes. Yes. Who is distributing it here? Who? Yes. 
there must be mark, markups on, on the price uh, as, as, the, as the product manages to, to get past fences, obstacles. There is, a, there is a continuous markup in price, absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a tough one regarding the, the geography of the cartels in the U.S. I, I am sure that law enforcement agencies have similar maps and they know who's distributing what, where. Um, from my fragmentary reading of what happens in the U.S., I know, for example, that the Gulf cartel um, was, you know, is in partnership with drug gangs in Atlanta, American gangs, and that that's uh, the largest hub for distribution around the South. Um, that the Juarez cartel uh, has important partners in the city of Dallas, and Dallas is another important hub for distribution around, you know, the plains. Uh, that Nevada and Phoenix have become big hubs where the Mexican cartels, the Tijuana cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, are also in partnership with local groups to distribute the, the, the product. So your question is a very valid one. I mean, here, as we've just been pointing the, the finger at Mexico. The, the people who are distributing it here majority of them are American, even if they look Mexican. They, they, they might, most of them are ethnically Mexican, and they've been here one or two generations, or, or, or even first generation, uh, but they are American. Uh, case in point, the, the very sad and, and dreadful episode whereby a worker, uh, an American worker at the Juarez consulate was gone down. She and the husband and, and their seven-month-old baby was just left there in this SUV, a horrific incident. The people who carried out the, uh, uh, the assassination was a El Paso-based uh, El Barrio Azteca gang, a gang of Americans, not of Mexicans. Americans with American passports. And that's why they were able to go to Mexico, to Ciudad Juarez, to, you know, just look at the movements of these people and professionals. And at some point, they decided to clamp down. The issue there was this lady's husband worked in the prison system. He was a member of the, of the Texas prison system. I, I don't know what kind of practices he... <laughs> You know, his working practice is something I don't know about, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there was, uh, uh, you know, this was basically uh, uh, getting even. Or The point is, it was Americans, American citizens who came to Mexico to do this ex execution and then returned to the U.S. Uh, and like that, I suppose there are many examples. I, I recently attended a, uh, a dinner in which both American and Mexican legislators, federal legislators, got together to discuss the binational uh, uh, agenda. And one of the things that the Mexicans kept asking was, why is it that you guys are asking for all our classified information and all our databases, but you're not, you're, you're not reciprocating? We get nothing in return. And when I heard that at first, you know, the Mexican in me said, 
that's not nice. You know, there, there has to be symmetry. On second thoughts, when, when you look at the situation, wow, I wouldn't give them, I wouldn't give them anything, because because you cannot trust even the Secretary of Public Security of Mexico. His private secretary has been seen to be in in business with the cartel of Sinaloa. This guy receives money on a monthly basis from the biggest and strongest of the cartels. The private secretary of the Secretary of Public Security, the guy in charge of combating drug trafficking. So, whereas on the one hand, as a Mexican, and, and, and hearing echo from, from what some of of our co-nationals say, well, you know, it, it really it's not symmetrical. They ask more than, than what they give in return, um, uh, which means that the picture he, here regarding this distribution and who makes what and how much is something that's murkier, at least for you know academics. It, it, it's much harder to tap into public resources that contain uh, uh, this type of information. The fact that we don't have access to, to that information does not mean, first, it, it, does, it doesn't exist. Two, once the drugs come into American territory uh, and, and, and they get this markup in their price uh, and then they're distributed in retail, well, all those people who are making money are a mixture of, of Mexican and American criminals who are uh, together in, in business. No, It's quite remarkable that that they managed to do that while our two governments can't. Um, but, but, but that's unfortunately the, the, the situation. Yes? It's, yeah, it's not possible to win it because uh, you know, a good analogy is President Calderon started his term and issued this fierce command, war on drugs. It's a bit like a, you know, a fisherman boasting he's going to bring the, the biggest shark and the biggest ray and his nets are the best, when in fact the nets are, are full of holes. Uh, I'm sure that his intent uh, is, is genuine. I'm sure that some of the people that surround him believe in, in, in the cause and, and are fighting, you know, foot, tooth, and nail for it. But it's it's the infrastructure they have to work with, which is very deficient at the three levels of government. If at the federal level, uh, you know, top-placed people have been unmasked as passing information to one or another of the cartels, receiving monthly stipends from them. When you go to the state or the municipal level, the situation is much worse. At the municipal level, the drug dealers vet who are the local authorities. Mexico has 2,500 municipalities. This doesn't happen in each and every one of them. But reports I've read suggest that maybe up to a third, one in every three municipalities, are today under the control of the drug dealers. They vet who can be in power or not. 
And if you just do a Google, just last three or four days, 2010 is, is, is a year of big elections in Mexico, uh, particularly in a couple of, uh, let me just show you, in a couple of critical states. I just want to show you this one. There are governor and local legislature and, munici and municipal elections in the state of Tamaulipas, hotbed of drug trafficking. Oaxaca, hotbed of, of drug trafficking. Chihuahua, where Juarez is, and the state where most, where, 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 where bulk of the violence has been taking place. And just in the last week or two, several uh, aspirants to mayorships were gone down in broad daylight in front of their families because they had been offered deals that they wouldn't accept. Well, when you're mayor, can't we? No, you can't. Okay. And three people have been gone down. Not only PAN, people from the PRI, people from the PRD, left, center, and right. If you don't want to play ball, we're going to eliminate you. And so, as I say, at the state and, and, and local level, th things break down to such an extent, and the capacity to respond is so feeble and weak that, that the cartels have, have taken over. On the, on the question of the arc, I mean, could, could we be reaching a zenith? And, I, mean, I wish, uh, but, but I doubt it. And, and the reason I doubt it is because you know, basic microeconomics, as if your interdiction effort is being successful, i.e., you are busting higher amounts of the product, the price receives a markup, profit margins grow, and the one th two things the, the, the cartels can count on, given their abundance, is young males in search of a livelihood in Mexico who are willing to pay a lottery, uh, and weapons, uh, assault rifles, uh, uh, a substantial amount of which come from, from the U.S., no? from the, I've read 6,500, close to 7,000 uh, uh, armories, gunshots, uh, along the, the you know, 50 miles from the border. So given the abundance of those two means, you, you could go on for years on end. The place wouldn't collapse, but you would, you would continue having eight, nine, ten thousand people killed on an annual basis, and that can continue to happen for another five or ten years. It could. Right, 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 right. You, you also have a. If you want just to privately, because we've we've finished. Apparently.